0: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
1: See it, hear it, think it. Talk radio and talk TV.
2: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. An awful lot to do this morning. There's a big press conference being called by the BBC. Tim Davey, uh, who is, of course, the Director General of said organisation, the state broadcaster, uh, was going to have a press conference announcing the BBC's annual report, which normally has things in it like how much money they've spent, how much money they're going to spend, uh, how much money they've collected from you, uh, the licence fee payer, exactly how uh, their ratings were doing, exactly what sort of shows they liked and what sort of shows they didn't like. Unfortunately, of course, for Tim Davey, uh, one of the most unlucky men uh, in global media, uh, he's going to have to answer questions instead uh, by the press about what is ha- what is happening inside Broadcasting House, uh, why somebody has been suspended, why uh, the BBC seems to have taken seven weeks to address a problem uh, that was suggestedly put to them uh, by the parents uh, of a young individual who said uh, that he's uh, and her drug habits might have been uh, basically fo- foiled, might have been produced, might have been actually encouraged by somebody from the BBC paying money out uh, to wit uh, for what can be described as uh, sordid pictures that were coming in. It's a terrible mess. It's a terrible nightmare for the BBC. Uh, It's a pretty bad nightmare for the family as well concerned. And we'll be bringing you that press conference as it happens. But unfortunately, it will not be actually televised as such, even though the BBC uh, are in a position to televise it. What they're going to be doing instead is doing it on Zoom. But we'll be having somebody watch it on Zoom. Uh, Hopefully, Oliver Whitfield-Mirchic is going to be watching it for us. We'll bring you some cuts and some clips from that uh, as and when it happens. The scandal continues. Um, The Director General uh, is still under fire. He doesn't seem to have an answer for it. Whenever you hear a BBC report about the BBC's conduct, the BBC reporters don't seem to know much about the BBC's conduct. So uh, the story continues to rumble on. Uh, The Sun this morning uh, calling uh, the BBC liars quoting um, the young person's father or stepfather, we only spoke out to help save a vulnerable addict child. And the family say they spent an hour telling the BBC their fears in May, seven weeks ago. So, uh, we'll be talking to Ella Whelan about it, columnist that Spiked Online. Hard to believe that this is where uh, the media has come to. We'll also be talking about uh, male sex offenders faking trans identities. We'll also be talking about what could be the biggest maternity scandal in NHS history. And, of course, there's also, as you might expect, an awful lot of stories around the migrant crisis going on as well. The migrant bill going through the House of Commons later on today. Uh, We now find out that we're spending half a million quid a day uh, keeping hotels. Hotels empty for migrants, never mind paying for them to actually stay there extraordinary times in which we live 0344 499 1000 Laura Dodsworth is going to be here as well and also of course uh, we'll be finding out exactly what's going on with the NATO summit later on as well uh, Joe Biden was here yesterday uh, today he's off to Vilnius in Lithuania uh, so we'll bring you up to date with all of that as well of course we want to hear from you because your views are as important as anybody's 0344 499 1000 is the number and uh, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham let us get it on Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Tuesday morning uh, and still the most dominant story on all the front pages of the newspapers is, of course, the BBC story. Let's talk to Ella Whelan, who's a columnist at Spikes Online. Ella, it's quite hard to believe that this story has become such a focal point for, for, for everything that seems to be um, wrong with this country in a way. You know, we've got people who want the story to be true. We've got people who want the story not to be true. And nobody seems to be able to kind of see the wood for the trees here.
3: Yeah, it's a real mess. Um, and I think it tells you a lot about our approach to cases like this, because obviously there is a bit of a fever pitch atmosphere because of recent discussions about TV presenters and relationships. and uh, But there is also many, many cases of um, people in the public eye who have been wrongly accused and had their careers um, tragically ended right. and their name smeared for no reason at all. Um, there is a, you know, there's a problem with the way in which we approach these kind of accusations. Um, there's a sort of desire to have a trial by social media and I think, you know, the BBC has probably taken you know, half of the right approach, which is refusing to name anyone um, until there is, you know, proper evidence and obviously the mess of Whatever the Sun has been doing in mm. its reporting of, uh, you know, two sides of the same story coming out um, in the last twenty-four hours, the difference between the parents and the um, person in question. So, but, but at the same time, as you mentioned in your intro to the show, there, you know, the BBC seems to have taken a very long time to processed this it seems to um have been that it's kind of on the one hand trying to maintain some level of privacy and protection mm. for its presenter on the other hand looking like it doesn't really know what's happening and that's not helping um that's not being helped by uh, the parents of this person contradicting them in the press constantly so this is i think it just tells us something about the uh about the way in which we handle these kind of cases mm. and the way in which we approach these kind of cases which is it's Pretty dysfunctional. Yes. So doesn't and seem to and, be that and anyone... I think
2: some of that dysfunction has been created by the sort of wokest view of the world, you know, that, you know, oh, hang on a minute. Uh, if there has been some wrongdoing, um, we better protect the person that might have done that wrongdoing because it might be difficult for them to have to deal with it. Um, whereas, you know, there was a time before now, if somebody had done something wrong, and I don't mean illegal, I just mean wrong... Then you know they had to suffer the consequences of what they had done. But now we live in this kind of you know victim culture, where even if you're the perpetrator of something wrong, uh, you can also be the victim.
3: I don't know, Mike, because you know people, you know Carl Beach comes to mind. Yeah, I think that we have to be very very careful because there are cases of people in the public eye who have been wrongly accused, and you know people in the media. I won't name names, but on a separate channel have um you know been in full support of the of the those who have you know alleged and accused yes. them and
2: wanted it to be true, and also wanted it to be true to such an extent that they didn't ask the right questions.
3: Yes. And certain politicians went along with it and people's lives were really ruined. Yeah. And actually people some individuals died before their names yeah, were. Absolutely clear. unbelievable. So I am I am delighted, actually, at least, or at least I'm sort of hopeful that there is still people out there who say innocent till proven guilty is a very important part of the justice system. We should, pre, you know, as much as anyone, and you know, obviously myself included, I hope everyone heard this story and thought, what an awful thing mm. they felt for the person, felt for the parent. But then you also, your sort of rational side of you have, that's an emotional reaction, which is a moral one. Then your rational side has to kick in and say, okay, hang on a minute, is this actually true? We should wait until we hear all the facts. And I think there's not enough caution being preached, particularly on Twitter, where rumour... I mean, I really feel for some of the BBC presenters who have been named over the weekend mm. unfairly. People like Nikki Campbell, Rylan, um, who you know have had a, a horrible time mm. with people smearing them unjustly. Uh, and Jeremy Vine as well. And that's, I think we should take a long, hard look at yeah. ourselves and say, is this really how justice is meant to be followed?
2: But again, that also is a result of the uh, the, the, the cautionary sort of uh, approach that's been taken by the BBC, because the BBC uh, has basically put those people in that place. Because the problem with not naming someone uh, as the possible uh, centre of, a, of an investigation is that suddenly everybody is then at, uh, at risk of being uh, suspected of being it.
3: That's true. That's true. But I just reiterate again, if this does turn out to be a false allegation, and if it's the case that the sun hasn't done due diligence, whatever it is, if it turns out that this is another fantasist, which is plausible, it's possible that that could be true, um, or that there's something more complicated going on, and you have named an individual in the current climate in which we live in in which rumours and lies stick, and people aren't very forgiving. And there's a kind of general sentiment mm. of all no smoke without fire. Well, then you will have ruined an individual's life for no reason. Yeah, that's so true. So I'm but, of the but, mind but, that but it's but best equally, to preach caution.
2: No, I don't. I don't disagree with with what you're saying in in theory. But the trouble is, in practice, the world doesn't always work like that. Because as you've seen, you know, as you said, social media is uh, a wash with all sorts of allegations, some of which uh, are inevitably going to prove to be not just wrong but, but dangerously wrong and in the end they might all be proved to be wrong but the, the thing for, for for me is that when something like this happens uh, you have to take the newspaper also at face value and the newspaper says that they have got corroboration says that they've seen evidence says that the uh, um the bbc have in fact um been very very dismissive of this family's complaint because they didn't do anything about it and that's the question that will be asked I would imagine today of Tim Davy It should be asked is you know um, who exactly was told about this on May the 19th and who did they then tell because it doesn't look as if anybody did anything and that and that in the end is not caution that is negligence isn't
3: it? Well yes I mean look I'm a journalist I think trust in the media is very important but I also think you know in particular The Sun has a Particular kind of history um, of not being trusted on certain issues, and I think that will play into some people's assessment of this story. Um, on the other hand, if there is no truth to it, and there is, and there's, you know, no evidence, then it would have been quite easy for the BBC to come out and say there's nothing to see here, yeah. I- ignore it. I think that you know, I, I suppose. Part of the problem is that there is a nervousness on all sides when approaching these kind of issues because it's gone wrong so many times in the past, that clarity is lacking. And so maybe this press conference or Zoom press conference, which seems, you know, rather cowardly or at least mean, you know, it, it, a, a, a bit defensive yes. from the BBC will clear up some things.
2: It's not another great decision but let's let's move on from that because we'll be talking about it later on in the show anyway uh, a couple of stories that have crossed our desk today that I thought you'd be interested in we'll talk about the NHS um, a maternity scandal in a moment but I don't know if you've seen this story about jailed male sex offenders who are faking transgender identities in an effort to move to women only prisons. I mean you could have said I told you this would happen I suppose after the uh, the Adam Graham uh, Isla Bryson story up in Scotland right
3: Yeah I mean this is something that women who have been talking about women only spaces in prisons and and rape crisis centers have said all along which is that you know the the problem with making with blurring the lines of sex um particularly in a situation like a prison is not that you know people who are genuinely got conflictions about their gender identity or transgender or whatever are going to suffer, mm. but that there is a plausibility for men who are very sure of the fact they are men who you know have been men their all- whole lives and have abused women decide to take advantage of loopholes and continue their immoral behavior, and that there is a serious protection issue um in relation to women in those prisons and obviously, who would be a who would be on a, a prison board, who would be a prison officer making the decision? How do you make a decision as to whether or not someone is legitimately transgender or not and legitimately believes when we are supposed to have this thing called self i d yeah. which says you can just declare yourself and you're meant to be believed? It's much, it's much, it's practically much better and also I think politically more sound to simply have a rule which says that prisons are segregated and divided on the basis of biology, of sex, Mm. of reality. And that's that. Right. And I think then you don't have any loopholes for for genuinely abusive people to try and uh, uh, kind of escape the system. Yes.
2: And you have to assume as well, I'm afraid, that men 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 who are in jail for having uh, been sex offenders are likely to be abusive people. And I think you can pretty much say that without fear or favour. And you can remember back to the in that famous Nicola Sturgeon interview, the beginning of her kind of downfall, where she always you could almost hear the gears grinding inside her head as she started to go. Oh, actually, yeah, there is a circumstance where uh, actually a man cannot identify as a woman. And it all just fell apart from that moment on.
3: Yeah, it seems, I mean, for most people this seems like a kind of a no-brainer. Which is that no not all of course not all transgender people in fact very few transgender people are uh, you know wanting to abuse and be um sexually deviant the most vast majority of them have no interest in this debate at all they just actually get on with their lives and aren't um aren't sort of obsessed with uh changing the mm. whole nature of the way society runs but for in a place like a prison it's not just about safety it's also about things like dignity Privacy, you know, uh, ability for women to, you know, it's not necessarily that a uh, some a, a man who says he's a woman coming into a woman's prison is suddenly going to be a rape threat. Although obviously that is, that I is think, if part he's a of sex factor. offender,
2: you'd have to take that into account, wouldn't you?
3: Yes, but but even if it was, say, this is this is a kind of a where people start to split hairs. Even if it was someone who wasn't in for any kind of violent crime, even if it was somebody in for I don't know tax fraud or something, there would still be the case of having. A uh, male someone with a male body in a woman's prison would pose certain problems for women in that yeah. prison on the basis of you know getting change of dignity of privacy yeah. things i've already mentioned you know which is it's not all just about threat of sexual offenses it's also about the quality of life that those prisoners in those w- women's prisons have and should be afforded
2: yeah no absolutely ella stay with us if you would we've got more things to talk about coming up what could become the biggest maternity scandal in NHS history. I actually heard an expert on uh, a station yesterday saying that basically for an awful lot of women in this country going into hospital and having a baby, is quite a dangerous endeavour, which is an extraordinary place to be. 0344 499 1000 will take your calls, of course, as well. This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Back after this.
1: Available for free now from the App Store and Google Play. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
2: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. A lot of people agreeing uh, with Ella saying, do not name someone unless the facts have been proven uh, to be true. Ella talks a lot of sense. Uh, so you're getting quite a bit of praise, Ella, for your very well-measured uh, points of view in that last conversation that we had. Let's talk, though, a bit about this new um, NHS maternity scandal. Uh, Nottingham inquiry that's examined 1,700 baby death cases. This is really quite a shocking story when you sort of get inside it, isn't it?
3: It is shocking but at the moment this seems to be, I mean regularly, it's kind of routine. But This is, you know, only the most recent mm. in a series of pretty appalling um, reports and investigations into maternity units across the country. Donna Ockenden um, being at the sort of head of one of the biggest ones recently and essentially saying that it is a, it, having a baby in you know in this country which is supposed to mm. be civilized um resourceful you know well-trained nhs is incredibly dangerous and there have been uh, too many far too many cases of women and babies suffering either women dying mm. their babies dying and un- what should have been a healthy normal birth procedure because of a range of things. And it's kind of complicated. It's a very complicated picture because it would be easy to say, well, what's going on is that these places are, are, you know, understaffed, they're badly funded, which is both, you know, those two things are true. Um, And therefore, it's just a case of pumping more money into the NHS. In actual fact, and I had, you know, I went through this experience when I had my son uh, nine months ago. Right. Is it nine months ago
2: already? Blimey. Time flies. It is nine months (laughs)
3: today. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't feel like that. But anyway, but um, he there, there is a a situation in the NHS, where in particular, cesarean C sections are have become sort of something that midwives are told to ward women off. And in many of the cases of uh, natural births are prioritised despite the fact that we know that natural births can be extremely dangerous and lead to babies dying or suffering. Right. Um, and an aversion to going into theatre for C-sections has led to a lot of these women unnecessar- and their babies unnecessarily um, suffering. And there's, I think we need to have a wholesale review of what is going on in midwifery and what is going on in maternity care, mm. because there seems to be a lot of people with a lot of strange ideas about how to properly care for Um, a woman giving birth, and a lot of people who probably shouldn't be in the job anymore. And, you know, I had lots of beautiful, wonderful um, NHS staff who were lovely to me throughout my pregnancy. And unfortunately, at the time of birth, I had some really horrible ones who shouldn't have been on the job at that time. And me and my son suffered for it. Absolutely. And and let me tell you this, because
2: my my children are are a lot older than that. but, But 20 years ago, it was the same. You know the whole idea of of a of an optional caesarean, even for medical reasons, uh, was very much frowned upon. Um, And people who were, uh, you know, young mothers going in to have a a baby for the first time were bullied quite often by uh, people saying to them, "You can't." you know opt for a cesarean it doesn't matter that you know you you aren't able to, to deliver a child naturally we're going to make it we're going to we're going to try and do it and according to this uh, report yesterday the claims relate to dozens of deaths stillbirths and at least 46 cases of babies left brain damaged after mm. mistakes at birth
3: yes because i mean donna in donna arkerton's report she details a numerous cases of women who reported throughout the birth that they you know that they either couldn't feel movement they could feel reduced movement of the baby and actually even cases where baby's heart rates were dropping yeah. and staff were still pushing back on the idea of going to an emergency C section which anybody who knows anything about you know, birth is at the minute there's a problem or something like that, you get that baby out as quick as possible and in the safest way, which is through a C-section. I mean, my own experience was because I had gone through fertility treatment mm. at the start of my pregnancy, they said, you're going to have to have an induction in a C-section because there's a risk of stillbirth. And I was like, okay, fine, mm. that's fine. Uh, But it's a terrifying uh,
2: conversation to have, isn't it?
3: It's a terrifying conversation to have. But then, thirty odd weeks later, I was then told by the same midwife, "Oh no, we think you're okay to have a natural Mm. birth." And I said, "Well, I don't care what you think. If you use the s word of stillbirth with a woman, she's not going to be okay with taking a risk." So there's a there's a real in a bit. I think the whole kind of too posh posh to push. Mm prejudice which there is still a lot of in the NHS means that women aren't being listened to and you know obviously doctors and nurses are, and midwives are trained we should trust them but at the same time if we're not listening to women who are saying there is something wrong there's something going wrong with mm. my pregnancy I can feel that baby's not moving well why wouldn't you listen to women doing that so I, I have to say it's pretty horrific watching all of this continue to unfold and yet we're still not having a sort of big conversation about overhauling and and returning to looking at um, maternity care.
2: And in the end, that's kind of where people look at the NHS and say, well, you know, you say it's the envy of the world. Well, not in this area, it's not. Um, And maybe you should concentrate a bit more on making that better rather than ensuring that all the pregnancy leaflets that you print uh, talk about people with cervixes.
3: Exactly. I mean, you know, it's the 75th anniversary of NHS, we're all supposed to um, celebrate it, I very much believe in the political aspiration of having a national health service, which is free at the point of access, I want that to be something that we um, have Mm. at the moment, it is not the case that it is either desirable, or achievable to be I know lots of women who go private. For yeah. their maternity care, because it and you know myself, I had to go private for fertility care, and I tell you the difference in uh, the kind of the the treatment I yeah. got, the drugs I got, everything was astounding. Mm. And I was depressed. I was so depressed the day I had to go back into an NHS hospital. So it you know if that is the case and this system isn't working, why are we treating it like a sort of holy entity yeah. that we just have to you know? Re- kind of resist any criticism I think a 75th anniversary of a system is time enough to look at it and say what's going wrong what can we fix
2: yeah exactly right one final story I just want to get your view on Keir Starmer uh, talking last week about oracy uh, which a lot of people didn't know was really a word until last week um, talking about teaching children to be good at speaking what do you make of that?
3: Well, I—I I mean, I'm—I work with a charity called Debating Matters, which is a really fantastic organisation that does debating, uh, real-life political topics in schools with sixth formers. I think public speaking and political debate in schools is essential. I think it's brilliant. Where, well, you know, the question I have for Kirsty is absolutely get kids talking. But at the moment, schools seem to be more interested in reju- not just getting kids talking, but specifying what they can talk about. So having restrictions on conversations about, I don't know, gender ideology, mm. critical race theory, all the rest of it. I think that in order to have a kind of to get kids to, and this is what debating matters is really all about, to get kids to be to want to. Uh, be engaged with the world think about the world talk about the world you have to give them the space to do that freely and I think we would do we could do far worse than instilling a sense of the importance of free speech particularly when it comes to political debate. yeah in no I agree people. with you but I
2: actually said this on the day it's less important to teach people um how to speak and than it is to teach them that they should be able to say anything they want
3: well, it's, yeah, it's uh, obviously you as a teacher, you are supposed to give guidelines and you can steer a debate and you can, you know, give them the parameters for what to talk about. But I think we've also given up on the idea that actually schools should be somewhere where at genuinely learning about things means you test things out. So I, I actually remember, uh, fair play to my school, we had sort of a basically oracy public speaking tests where a group of us would go into a classroom with a teacher and they'd open up a conversation and see how about something that was in the news and you'd kind of test out being able to talk about things. You might say some really stupid things. You might say some really wrong things and obviously kids can come out with all kinds of prejudices or, or, you know, unfactual things that they've picked up from all over the place. At the moment, we penalise them for doing that rather than actually giving them the space to say, well that was wrong, maybe you can try again, maybe you can think a little bit differently and have a genuinely open debate. Mm. Whereas I think at the moment we at the moment we are limiting what kids can talk about and that is a problem for when they become adults and are then too nervous to even open their mouth, which, as we know, is a big problem with Mm. self-censorship.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. Ella, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Ella Whelan, their columnist at Spiked Online, uh, giving her views of oracy uh, in the final analysis there, but also uh, Keir Starmer's ideas that uh, he wants everybody to be able to speak well. Well, speaking well is all very well, uh, but speaking sense is not so common. You'd have to say. Uh, You get it here, though. This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Coming up, uh, with the latest from the BBC and the World of Broadcasting House. Kevin O'Sullivan is going to be talking to us about it. Coming next. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. It's still, to a large extent, the only story in town, the BBC and the nightmare story uh, for Tim Davey, the uh, uh, Director General, who's going to be giving a press conference this morning, uh, albeit on Zoom only, so that nobody can actually sit in the same room as him. We'll get details on that very shortly. Kevin O'Sullivan's here as well uh, to update us on what is being said in the big, wide world of the media. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, has just said he does not know who the suspended BBC presenter is, but he has been assured the allegations against them will be investigated swiftly and rigorously i presume that's come from uh, uh, the bbc itself right let's go down though to broadcasting house holly hudson talk tv's uh, very own reporter is there holly very good morning to you
4: good morning to you mike
2: thanks very much for joining us uh, what's the mood there i mean it was quite busy there lots of people coming and going making sure people knew they were in and that they were not off um, and that's is it the same thing today
4: Yes, it very much is. And obviously the Director General, Tim Davey, is set to face the music, face the media here in the next couple of hours over the corporation's handling of these allegations. The scheduled briefing set to unveil the broadcaster's annual report, a briefing that's now almost certainly going to be overshadowed, as I say, by questions from journalists over the... um, controversy and the scandal that has engulfed the BBC over the last four days. Now we're expecting Tim Davie to say something, expecting a statement that hasn't been confirmed. It might be he says he can't say anything, we just don't know at this stage. And there is still a lot that we don't know about this story, including, of course, the presenter's identity that remains unknown this morning. Whether it will still be unknown at the end of the day remains to be seen following this briefing and, of course, given the speculation swirling online and given murmurings that some MPs, some politicians are considering using parliamentary privilege To name them in the House of Commons, that has been done before. They're, of course, in very rare circumstances. We do know there's a lot of questions, serious questions, for the BBC to answer and that the scandal has deepened in the last 24 hours due to a number of developments. Notably, of course, last night the BBC said they'd received a letter from a lawyer representing the young person at the heart of all these allegations, dismissing them as rubbish, insisting that nothing unlawful or inappropriate has taken place, but this morning in a new interview in The Sun, the mother and stepfather of the young person behind uh, these uh, allegations has doubled down and uh, stood by their account, by their central allegation that this top BBC star paid their child several tens of thousands of pounds for explicit images over a period of three years. They claim they've got a dossier of evidence, bank statements, screenshots, messages to back up their story and they accuse the corporation of lying, not telling the truth when it said that new allegations of a different nature came to light last Thursday, which is what led them to formally suspend the star. Now those new allegations, we believe, relate to the age of the young person. The family insist that this all began, the series of payments started when they were 17, and that's key because that could constitute a criminal offence. They insist they told the BBC that this young person is now 20. They say that they knew all of this and it's not hard to do the maths and that's what a lot of all this centers around really what the BBC knew when they knew it who knew it what management uh, knew of it and whether their action was appropriate and quick enough. So we may well get some answers from Tim Davey on that in the next couple of hours.
2: We will indeed, hopefully, Holly. Thank you very much indeed. Kevin O'Sullivan joins me now. Kevin, um, the questions are obvious uh, to Tim Davey, whether he answers them or not. I don't know what the precedent is for the BBC's kind of um, uh, an annual, annual report. Normally they talk about things like programmes that have done well, money they've spent, that kind of thing. Yeah. Can he hide behind all that?
5: No, I mean, he'll have to make time for this very pressing issue. Uh, Whatever they do to try to dissipate this situation, and they're obviously trying very hard today. As we discussed earlier, Mike, this kid somehow seems to have suddenly hired a very expensive Mm. lawyer. wonder who's paying for that. Uh, and they say, oh, nothing to see here, move along. Right. Well, I'm sorry, Mr Davey. Uh, the BBC is still at the centre of its biggest crisis since Bashir and Saville, mm. and uh, you better get your act together. So, yes, he'll be facing some very difficult questions.
2: Yes, and the Prime Minister saying he doesn't know who it is, but the investigation will be swift and rigorous. Can I so... just say something about yeah. that?
5: You're the Prime Minister. You should know who it is. Yeah you know, you, he's entrusted with state secrets. The Prime Minister, for God's sake, should know yeah. who the star is at the centre yeah. of this massive storm mm. engulfing the state broadcaster. It, I don't know if he's telling the truth, but if that is the truth, that is an abrogation of prime mm. ministerial duty. Find out who it is, Rishi, right now. Even Do if your job
2: properly. Well, even if he doesn't say who it is, he yeah. can still yeah, say exactly. that he has been informed. Exactly. He should know who it is. He's surely, the Prime Minister. Surely he should be asking the BBC who they've suspended, right? Yeah, exactly. And should yeah, tell him, yeah, yeah, because it's our money, it's our state yeah, broadcaster, yeah, yeah. Um, and if the and if the suspension uh, has been done because they fear that something is wrong, mm-hmm. which you can only assume yeah. is the case, then clearly,
5: you know, the prime minister is. The say, prime what, minister should absolutely know. should know all about this. He should be across every single detail. And uh, if it's true that he doesn't know, I say that is an outrageous abrogation of prime ministerial duty. Go and find out the truth, Rishi. Do your job. find somebody who does that. Do your damn job. Exactly right. And
2: unusual, is it not, for Tim David to do this on Zoom? I mean, we're not in the middle of a COVID uh, lockdown.
5: Yeah, I mean, usually these uh, events, you know, the annual report, is a rather dry affair. Mm. There'll be lots of talk about the Royal Charter. As you say, brilliant programmes that the BBC has allegedly delivered over the past year. Can't think of any. Of rubbish television. Mm. Uh, and so on and so forth. But it won't be dry today. Uh, but, you know, he he's uh, stuck in the middle of this storm and he will bat it all away. Yeah. He will say a lot of platitudinous rubbish like, oh, we're taking this very seriously. Uh, now. We're, 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 we're now we it. are. We're investigating <laughs> it sensitively and swiftly. Well, what you stand accused of, Tim, is doing nothing for seven weeks. And then we're hearing that he didn't know about it Mm. for six and a half weeks. Uh, Well, okay, fair enough. But again, you're the man at the top. Mm. Maybe you should know, but Mm. why didn't the director general know about this? Somebody probably should have gone straight to him and said, this could be serious.
2: Because if that was the case, that he hasn't been told until last Thursday, Mm. then who is responsible... For, not, not, telling for him not telling him, and exactly. who did know exactly? Uh, and we, we're told by the by the family that they had an hour long conversation with the BBC. So it wasn't just a perfunctory phone call that uh, somebody made a couple of notes and that was the end of yeah, that. Yeah. They had an hour long conversation where they spelled everything out that they were concerned about. And then nothing happened.
5: Yeah, and uh, what we don't want to hear is uh, Mr Davies saying no laws have been broken. As I said earlier, nothing to see here move along. There's a lot to see here. We're not moving on. And uh, whether or not this uh, male presenter broke the law by uh, obtaining pictures for money when this kid was under the age of 18, 17 years old, uh, that's an important issue. But in the end, it's beside the point. Is this the way that a major, trusted BBC star should be behaving mm. away from his job? I don't think so.
2: No, I don't think they would want to put that into his contract. You know, <laughs> by the way, yeah, in addition to your other duties, you will also be procuring for your pictures own personal satisfactory satisfaction pictures of teenagers um, involved in sexual activity.
5: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so I haven't th- seen
2: that clause in any contract. Yeah,
5: and, and, and so if the BBC are trying to sort of pour... Oil on troubled waters and hope this will all go away then again it's got it badly wrong this isn't going away you have to do something about this Uh, this male presenter is not going to sail through this unaffected Mm. Uh, I think his career is over and it should be I think
2: I think that may well be the end result of all of this. Kevin, thank you very much indeed. We'll keep you updated. We're expecting Tim Davey uh, to start his briefing, as they're calling it, around about 11 o'clock, so we'll bring you anything we get from that as soon as we get it, of course. Coming up, though, uh, we'll take some calls. 0344 is the number. Uh, we've got Rakeb, um Hassan coming on as well to talk about the latest on the migrant crisis, and there's an awful lot to discuss there, by the way, uh, because now there's an offer, uh, if you'd like to, uh, to put some migrants up in Your own home. Gary Lineker will be straight on the phone, I would imagine. This is Talk TV.
1: See it, hear it, think it, talk radio and talk TV.
2: Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots going on this morning. As you can imagine, we want to hear from all of you. Uh, of course, 0344 is the number. We're expecting Tim Davey uh, to start his address to some journalists very shortly. Uh, he's going to be revealing the annual report at the BBC. But of course, all of that uh, overshadowed by the scandal currently engulfing uh, the state broadcaster, which involves a very senior uh, member of their staff uh, who has been suspended uh, from duties who who has not uh, appeared at work after allegations being made by a family uh, that their child was somehow uh, not quite groomed, they haven't used that word, uh, but was paid uh, up to £35,000 uh, of uh, of everybody's money, basically, uh, to, to send uh, dirty pictures to him. And that seems to be the allegation. In the meantime, um, uh, the individual concerned, who is now 20 years of age, uh, has apparently issued a statement through lawyers, although hasn't spoken to the BBC. They haven't been able Uh, to reach the person, uh, has said basically that uh, the claims that the parents are making in this case are rubbish. Um, uh, The the statement says that nothing illegal happened, that nothing um, inappropriate happened but as I said before to Kevin O'Sullivan that remains to be seen and that is really not uh, for the individual or his lawyer to determine. It might well be uh, for the police to determine it might well be for the BBC to determine Uh, the story has been broken in the sun of course this morning's headline says Dad the BBC are liars. So we'll find out what Tim Davey has to say for himself we'll bring it to you uh, as soon as we no, We've also been talking about the uh, terrible state of maternity care in this country. And Caroline has sent this uh, text in. She says, I trained as a state registered nurse in the early 1980s when it was not a degree course but an apprenticeship. You could only train as a midwife if you had done your general nursing training, which I was always surprised they cancelled. Introducing nursing as a degree cut out a whole tier of students that could have been excellent mid, uh, nurses. I think that's right. I think everybody who has been a nurse in the past and who didn't have to have a degree. regrets the fact that then now you do. And it's one of the impediments to getting as many nurses trained up as they should be. And it's also one of the impediments to good health care, it seems to me. But let's talk now to Rakiba San, Senior Advisor at Policy Exchange. There's a lot of stories going on uh, around illegal migrants. There's the illegal migrant bill, of course, that's going through the Parliament. At the moment, it's going to be back in the House of Commons after getting a battering in the House of Lords. We've just had a Policy Exchange report out which says that asylum-related spending has hit £3.5 billion a year. That's billion with a B. Um, also, people are being told today in that same report that it's costing something like half a million pounds a day to not only house migrants, but also to actually keep rooms empty for migrants in case they need to move in. And one of the latest recommendations is that you may wish to open your own home to an illegal asylum seeker. Why not indeed? 0344 499 1000. Rakeem, a very good morning to you.
6: Morning, Mike. How
2: are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Good piece in the Mail today in which you talk about um, the House of Lords being sort of one of the many um, forces of darkness, if you like, lined up against the government trying to stop their attempt to stop the boats. They seem to have um, hit a vein, don't they, these these organisations? It's the House of Lords, it's the Court of Appeal, uh, it's lefty lawyers, it's all of the people who don't want this policy um, to ever come into fruition.
6: Well, I make the point in my report, Mike, is uh, that in recent times uh, the power of these uh, judicial interventions in the UK government's immigration and asylum policy, uh, the power of those interventions need to be curbed. Uh, I think it's hugely problematic. I think it's undermined the effectiveness of the UK Rwanda migration partnership. And as you say in my new report for policy exchange. Uh, the the financial costs are remarkable Mm. Uh, when we're looking at uh, spending on hotel accommodation for newcomers uh, my one-year estimate puts that at 2.2 billion pounds just to put that in perspective Mike that's three and a half times higher than the UK government's budget to tackle homelessness for 2022-23 and it's larger than the 2.1 billion pounds the entire pot of round two of the levelling up fund. And I think when many people hear that, they'll be extremely disappointed.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, the amount of money being spent is prodigious. And also it's been going on for a long time. If you remember, um, Mm -hmm. there were those um, asylum seekers stroke illegal migrants who were in Pimlico. They didn't like the fact that they were being forced to live four to a room. So they literally went out on strike. And when Richard Tice spoke to them, it turned out that they'd been living in a hotel in Essex for two years before they got to Pimlico. Um, And they managed to get what they wanted and they managed to get themselves into rooms where there was only one other person. But people are being put up um, in this country, in these hotels for years and years and years.
6: Absolutely. And I don't think that's a particularly good situation for uh, those newcomers either, um, if truth be told, to be in that limbo. Uh, I've, I've made the point in the report as well. That if you remember last February, we had the large scale public disorders in Knowsley uh-huh. on Merseyside outside the four star suites hotel. Yes. And I think this is a real problem with how uh, newcomers are dispersed uh, in the UK, Mike. They're disproportionately relocated to some of the poorest, most deprived parts of the country. And in my view, if you do that, and you have asylum seekers being accommodated in four-star hotels in areas which may have acute shortages when it comes to good quality and sustainable social homes, Mm. then that does risk fueling public resentment in those communities and that fu- that fundamentally undermines social cohesion. Yeah,
2: well we've got something similar happening in Tlanetli right now uh, around one of the hotels which has been commandeered uh, for migrants, one of the nicer hotels uh, in that part of the world but you know you're right to say that um, uh, this is the anniversary of what happened in Liverpool because that was painted at the time wasn't it, as a kind of outpouring uh, not of local disgust as what, what was going on but a kind of an infiltration by the quotes far right.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Which it simply wasn't.
6: Well, uh, there was uh, hugely problematic narratives surrounding the nosley Disorder. Uh, there, there was uh, some commentators suggesting that uh, local residents have been radicalized mm. uh, by the conservative government clearly have no understanding of the political environment in Knowsley, uh, which is on Mersey side which is not known for example to purchase the sun's newspapers right. and uh, buy into its uh, commentary on matters of immigration and it, and it and it is very much a rock red labor voting area right. so i think that what the gov- what we all need to do really is engage with very legitimate concerns Um, in in these local communities, Mm. which have been starved of meaningful investment for some time. And what we really need to do uh, when it comes to the relocation of refugees in the UK, Mike, we need to have a streamlined asylum system, in my view, one that prioritises women and children, uh, the the very most uh, persecuted groups uh, in the world. And crucially, it needs to be a shared national endeavour. And and I think that what we need to look at is how wealthier parts of Britain, including those which tend to be more pro-refugee and more liberal minded, uh, how they can help personally when it comes to rehoming newcomers.
2: Yeah, but I think the problem that people don't want to talk about um, and and have so far yet not really discussed is that the numbers coming right now are Mm -hmm. unsustainable. The amount of money being spent by the government uh, is unsustainable. And therefore there almost needs to be somebody to stand up in the House of Commons or the House of Lords to say, look, it's all very well saying we must be a a country that welcomes people with open arms. We must be seen as a humane place. We must not be doing anything seen as inhumane by other countries of the world. You know, there is no question that an awful lot of the people coming here are simply coming here in order to have some kind of a better life. Now, whether that is financially uh, driven or whether it's driven by something else, we don't know. But they can't just keep coming on the basis they want to. Because I was listening to a conversation earlier on today about, you know, um, how to detect whether people are coming here illegally or not, whether they've got passports, whether they're fleeing a war-torn country. Surely the point is, if you're fleeing a war-torn country and you've got no passport as a result, then you stop in the first safe country you find, because that's where you stay.
6: Well, I'd make the point, Mike, that the line between uh, economic migrant and genuine refugee has become increasingly blurred under our... Asylum system, and I think that is a very serious problem. Mm. What we need might we need a streamlined well-ordered asylum system Which prioritizes the world's very most? Um, persecuted peoples, so I argue in my new report for policy exchange for the introduction of an annual cap on refugees, yeah. which is democratically determined uh, By the UK Parliament and under that cap women and children who are at major risk of sexual violence in conflict-affected territories and insecure displacement facilities, they would be prioritised under that cap. And actually, Mike, if you were to do that, I I genuinely think more British families would even be interested in personally rehoming uh, refugees, and that would ultimately, in the longer term, uh, make savings for um, for the British taxpayer more generally.
2: And that's in the, in the policy document, isn't it, that, uh, that you guys mm. have put out, that Ukraine-style sponsorship schemes mm. uh, expanded to Iranian, Afghan, Syrian and Iraqi people uh, might make it cheaper. But, I mean, presumably you would still be advocating that people who did that would get money, like people who did house Ukrainians.
6: Well, I, th- I think that there's a discussion to be had in terms of what kind of financial assistance would be provided. But one thing that's clear that would ultimately rely uh, that would ultimately um, reduce our reliance on accommodating newcomers in hotels, mm. which, as you know, Mike, is incredibly costly. And even though the government is trying to diversify um, types of accommodation for newcomers, we've talked. There's been talk of disused military sites, um, barges. Uh, they have their own. They have their own issues. Uh, that that includes uh, high levels of opposition mm. within local communities there. So I think that this proposal, what it does, if if there are if there are families who are interested in the opportunity uh, when it comes to rehoming refugees, uh, that, that that voluntary spirit should be galvanised because at the moment we don't only have an overly expensive model uh, when it comes to rehoming refugees; it's incredibly statist. Uh, as well. And as you say, it's not just about the financial costs here, there are social costs as well. Because if you relocate uh, newcomers to relatively deprived communities, then there does risk fueling res- resentment in those particular areas of the country, which are Um, suffering from limited public resources.
2: Yes, but also, I think, also suffering from an influx of people uh, that they weren't expecting and that they can't really Mm. handle, that they can't really deal with. And there's more and more violent acts being uh, committed. There's one going on right now where there are charges pending, so we can't get into it, but where an Afghan uh, refugee has been accused of attacking two men, also Afghans, with a knife in one of these hotels uh, where, um, you know, they're being housed... While their processing is going on. And I think somebody somewhere has to put their hand up and just say, if this bill needs to get through Parliament, we need to just have, um, you know, a stop on everything uh, for a while because there's just too many people coming in. And, you know, we've got 600 coming in the other day, another new record. You know, the boats are not only not being stopped, there's more people coming than ever.
6: I, I think that Britain uh, has much reason to take pride in its rich history when it comes to providing sanctuary for some of the world's most persecuted peoples. Mm. I, th- I think that the, the, the issue here is that t- to what extent are those who are uh, crossing the channel into the UK unauthorised uh, at what risk of persecution where they in their homelands mm. and how much of it is actually economically motivated. Right and 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 i think that that's the debate that we really need to have i'm not interested in completely closing the drawbridge I think that the uk should have a streamlined system where we're able to rehome the world's most persecuted peoples and facilitate their integration so they can play an active social economic and cultural role um, in our country but what we really need to do we do need to get a grip of the numbers and we have to acknowledge the fact that many of those who have crossed into the uk on small votes via the english channel they're entering the uk but primarily economic reasons. Right, and there's also not, not much. There's not much evidence either, uh, to
2: be honest, that many of them are coming here to assimilate into our culture mm. uh, and become a contributing contributing member to society either.
6: Well, and I think that this is the point that if you want to have successful integration outcomes, I've often made the point to you, Mike, that I think that we're relatively successful multi-ethnic democracy but that's something to be preserved that's not something to be taken granted or um that's not something to be taken for granted so i think what we really need to do we need to have a sensible well-ordered refugee and asylum system and one which has integration at the heart of it otherwise you are going to undermine social cohesion especially in the more deprived parts of the country yeah. and i think that to be honest i don't think either of us would like to see that
2: No, I think the problem is, though, um, is that, Rakib, it's gone way beyond any of those kinds of ideals, and and it's so far down the wrong road that the only way to rescue it and bring it back is to somehow pause uh, the numbers coming for a period of time, whether that's six months, whether it's a year, and you just say, we're not going to actually take any more asylum seekers for a year, and maybe they'll go somewhere
6: else. Well, I I think that this comes to my point about um, curbing um, the judicial uh, power of interventions that we've seen both foreign and domestic, uh, especially referring to the European Court of Human Rights, because what that would do, that would heighten the effectiveness of the UK Rwanda partnership, for example. Now, there's many people who argue that Rwanda simply doesn't have the capacity to relocate uh, large numbers of small boats migrants. That's not really the point. The, the reality is that once fl- flights were uh, will start taking place, and you have that, that threat of judicial intervention has been neutralized or somewhat reduced, and once those flights take place, that would act as a deterrent and i think i think that's the key point uh, to be made and as i said many to as i said before um mike i do think that the country has much to be proud of when it comes to providing sanctuary and rehoming some of the world's most persecuted peoples i think that the uk has done a fine job of that when it comes to the its ukrainian sponsorship schemes and also um offering the opportunity for hong kongers to start a new life in the uk uh, people who are Uh, fleeing from Chinese state tinnery, especially the national security Yeah, but we
2: can't take everybody, Rakeem. At the end of the day, we just have have to have a sign that says stop. Thanks
6: very much. Well, I I think that the key thing is in terms of we have to stop the boats. I think that's key, that that level of illegal, unauthorised migration is not only leading to ever mounting financial costs, it's also a threat to social cohesion. And I think it's very important that the government has to bridge that gap between the political rhetoric And practical policy delivery on Mm. this front.
2: And they've got to defeat the enemy, uh, which is actually the enemy within the House of Lords um, and the Court of Appeal and various other places. Rakeem, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Rakeem Hassan, Senior Advisor at the Policy Exchange, basically saying Britain's legal uh, migration numbers are okay. But it's the illegal ones that are not. I'm not sure we would agree with that. I'm not sure everybody would agree with that. When we get 1.2 million people coming legally, many of them to study at university, we're told, oh, yeah, but they're enriching the economy because, of course, uh, they're spending more money here uh, than they're taking out of the system. Well, that remains to be seen, I think, is the problem. And when you've got a government that's saying they're paying half a million quid now to keep um, spaces in hotels that aren't even full for asylum seekers, knowing that they're all going to be coming then we're definitely barking up the wrong tree here, aren't we? This is Talk TV.
1: Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV.
2: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's Tuesday, so uh, it must be time to see Laura Dodsworth. And here she is. Very good morning to you.
7: Good morning.
2: Welcome to uh, the centre of the universe uh, right now. I don't mean this particular show. I just mean, you know, the middle of the whole kind of, you know, bubble of BBC... um, Madness, which we're all now currently engulfed in, um, Mm. which I know you haven't got down to something to talk about, but we're waiting to find out what Tim Davies is about to say. And you were telling me just before about how technology can sometimes be a bit of a bugbear. Um, He's having his his briefing with journalists over Zoom, so it might Mm. all go horribly wrong.
7: I hate all this. I Mm. I hate Zoom meetings rather than people meeting in real life. And it really affects communication you know some of that ch- so much of our communication is in the room mm. it's body language yeah. i think it's even at a chemistry level and i you know how well, you're much paying more attention
2: surely you're paying more attention in person than if you're on a screen in of front course. Of, somebody, you? of course
7: of mm. course in fact okay so no one's talking about the covert inquiry anymore yeah you know week four and everyone's bored of it but yeah. i'm going to bring up something that came out of the covert inquiry yeah. regarding communication okay um calderwood uh what's her name uh the scottish she was the Scottish Minister for yeah. Health, Catherine Calderwood. She was she was the CMO. She is the one who had to stand down after taking the train. I was gonna say, train. didn't
2: she take a train somewhere? She's not she, the one that took the train with COVID, but she's is she not the she's somebody in the Scottish part of Gosh, Parliament, there were right? so many
7: rule breakers, yeah. it's hard to get them all the I think the one who took the train minds. sort of
2: up and down the, the, the land from London to Scotland after being diagnosed with COVID. Yeah. There's a by election I think because of her losing her seat. Um but I think Calderwood was the one in Scotland. I, if I'm not mistaken. She's who, the Scottish she's a, I think she went to see somebody she wasn't supposed to go and see or something.
7: Something like that. But anyway, she has given her evidence now at the COVID inquiry. And something I thought was just quite astonishing that she said was in Scotland, they couldn't partake in all the SAGE meetings because mm. they just couldn't get them down the line. Right. You know, now she says, oh, we're so much better at remote working now. But then they they literally couldn't hear them on yeah. the phone. I mean, this... This is the state of the lines of communication during a supposed crisis. Well, do you remember
2: when they used to do Prime Minister's questions on Zoom? Mm. And they would have, I think, a handful of people in Parliament and everybody else would be on a screen. And it almost always went horribly wrong. And you were going, if you can't actually work out how to make the Zoom system work in Parliament, Mm. should you really be in charge of the country's health?
7: Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I find still now if I do an interview by Zoom yeah. every single one starts with can you hear me yeah. I still haven't nailed or it Oh, can
2: you unmute yourself
7: yeah but I think or I might that? be I think I might be you know inside I'm a secret Luddite I don't I don't think that we're doing ourselves any favour with modern communications mm. we can talk more about that as well in another story to come but one more thing from the Covid inquiry yes. because like I said nobody's talking about this but there are still some gems coming up Professor Mark Woolhouse gave evidence um, this week and he said something you could easily miss but it's important he said that COVID-19 wasn't the pandemic to end all pandemics it wasn't really that serious and we showed that we, we used me- we used measures that didn't really work what are we going to do when there is at some point a serious pandemic mm. you know you hear a gem like that and th- this isn't in the media now they aren- they only want um, arguments yeah. about Boris Johnson's whatsapps right. but That's a pretty interesting insight from a key professor giving evidence at the inquiry. Well,
2: I think part of the reason why something like that isn't reported as much is because it doesn't fit the narrative that most of the people doing the reporting want it to fit. They want Mm. horror stories. They want, you know, people dying. You know, they don't want somebody saying, actually, it wasn't that bad. Mm. Do they?
7: They don't. Um, But talking about the COVID inquiry leads me on to Boris Johnson. as you know, the government's wasted a lot of money trying to prevent the handing over of WhatsApp messages to the inquiry. Yes, you know, and that's failed, brilliant. right? Brilliant. Us, the taxpayer, have had to foot a completely pointless obstruction of the provision of evidence. But um, I want you to um, throw your mind back mm. to the cheese and wine parties at Downing Street. Yes. How could we forget... Now, there was a period of time, if you searched for Boris Johnson and cheese Mm. in Google or another search engine, you got a slew of articles about the cheese and wine parties at, at Downing Street. Now, there was a point that that changed. If you searched for Boris Johnson and cheese, the stories changed. Do you remember... Boris Johnson saying, everybody should get back to work. They should work in the office, not from home. Mm. This was a message the government was trying to push at the time. Let's yeah. all get back to normal. But do you remember what he said about why you should go to the office and not work from I home? I don't.
2: But you're going to tell me it's something to do with cheese, aren't you? It, it is
7: to do with cheese. He said the problem he finds is he gets distracted by all the cheese. Yeah. Now, this was um, this was an example, potentially, potentially, not provably, but potentially of what's called online reputation management. Now, if you're Boris Johnson, you probably don't like the fact that when you're searching for your name, up come all these stories about your rule-breaking parties. But he he lays out this quite eccentric, bizarre story about how he can't work from home because he gets distracted by the cheese in the fridge. You then search for Boris Johnson and cheese and you might be looking for those cheese and wine parties and what comes up instead is Boris Johnson's messages about getting back to the office. So this is an example of what's called reputation management. Mm. That world, that online digital PR world was buzzing with it at the time. I interviewed somebody who runs a digital firm called um, Liberty. His name is Gareth Morgan. interviewed for my new book, A State of Fear. And the reason we wanted to talk about this in the book, there's there's all the kinds of reasons that you know about social media why you can't rely on it. You know, it's driven by the engagement, it's driven by emotion, by clickbait headlines. There are algorithms Mm. that secretly guide content up and down and boot people off platforms. But there are also people that know how to game the algorithms right. and it happens quite a lot and i think that something you can learn from a story like that is you you can't necessarily believe the first page of results on google right. it sounds obvious but go down look at the second page look at the third page if there and, is one well there is and if you hear a story that sounds a little bit too crazy to be true mm. And it's right up there at the top. You might be right to question it, to yeah. use your judgment. Well, I
2: remember that the questions were all asked. And now that you mention it, I do remember that whole cheese conversation. But I also remember um, Boris Johnson giving an interview to Talk Radio, as it was then, where he talked about making model buses with cardboard yes. boxes, which was another yes. one. You're where you're right. Everybody kind of went, sorry. And then everyone went, oh, I see what you did there. Uh-huh. But we weren't entirely sure. Bus. But it was the Brexit bus, wasn't it? Yes,
7: it's another example. So you can't prove it. You're not going to find the person who's giving this him this search engine reputational yeah. management. Go, oh yes, that's what we do all the time. Mm. But it's quite obvious, and you know, once you spot it. Well, also, once you, once you go down that road
2: it. with somebody like Boris, and he used to come up with some quite eccentric stuff, you mm. start to think. You know, has he worked this out? Has he known that when he was about to d- to say something or other, he was actually going to throw you over there? Yeah. Because somebody's telling him that this is a good word to use or whatever, you know?
7: Absolutely. Well, It works very well with him because he does have this kind of bumbling, eccentric yeah. personality. So he can get away with crazy things like talking about painting model mm. buses as if he's always painting model buses. Well, we know what Boris does in nobody his spare could find, time. <laughs> well,
2: nobody could find it. Well, he doesn't have any spare time for a start because he's so busy doing all the things that keep him happy um, and keep other people happy. But that's the other thing. Nobody could find any evidence of this bus hobby of his. You know, nobody had ever seen a model bus that he had made. Yeah. You know.
7: But it's an attention-grabbing story, which means it floats up in the headlines in newspapers, which mm. means it floats up on the search engine results, right. which means you don't find the Brexit bus story yes. so much. So, yes, reputational management, watch out for Well, there'll for be a it. lot of that
2: going on at the BBC at the moment, then, I would imagine, because, um, you know, there's an awful lot of people who are not very happy with the way the BBC's handled it, and not not specifically uh, uh, just about the fact that they haven't named the person, because everybody else is now in the frame.
7: Mm. Yeah, I mean, it really points towards the need for transparency, yeah. doesn't it? It's it really has been does. so badly managed. I think
2: whenever anybody asks that question... Um, And whether transparency is always the best way, I think the answer is always yes. Always. It's better to be transparent and then take the medicine afterwards.
7: Honesty is the best policy. A man is as good as his word, etc. You know, how many of these these sayings are about honesty?
2: Mm. Yeah, most of them are, which we don't see much of. Let's talk about a strange story about the Royal Navy Mm. um, and submarines. Tell us about that.
7: Yeah. So apparently the Royal Navy is having trouble recruiting young people to serve on submarines because on submarines they have very strict policies about communication with the external world Mm. and young people are finding the idea of being without their social media, their messaging apps and TikTok too unpalatable to serve on submarines. So The Sun had a great headline, I think mm. it was Sub Snub. Yes. Um, and it's it's kind of depressing, the idea that people don't want to do this. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to serve on a submarine for many reasons. Yes. And social media yeah, is really the, the least of them. Yeah. But for those who feel that they do want to serve their country to work in that really challenging environment, um, you know, really being at the centre of power there mm. where, you know, our, our weapons are. To not want to do it because they're going to miss TikTok feels really quite tragic
2: maybe the armed force is not for you if that's how you feel
7: but i think the problem is my okay have you ever had this experience where you're talking about taking your kids on holiday and they Mm. say will there be wi-fi
2: Mm. um i don't think they've ever asked that because i just assume there will be right i think that's even more tragic in a way because they just just, why would you go anywhere that doesn't have it
7: well you know even i even i would be wondering is there wi-fi Mm. but i think it's um it's a it's a deal breaker for young people now So the thing is, um, TikTok is especially addictive. There are people now who are going to be very picky about addiction, say you can't call social media an addiction. But let's just say we're going to call it an addiction. The thing about it is it gives you a lot of reward with no effort. Mm. You have this constantly scrolling feed. You don't have to do anything for it. It gives you the impression of connection, even if you don't genuinely get human connections out of it. And, of course, it's got looping videos. And images and videos have what's called the truthiness Mm. effect. You know, they feel true. They sink in. They have a lot more of an emotional impact on you than words. So TikTok is, um, well, we all see it with our youngsters. We see them on TikTok all the time. Um, There are various studies that have looked at how social media and smartphones affect cognitive abilities and you're going to find a range of results you know from they don't affect you that much you know call your jets to wow we're becoming stupid because Mm. of the brain in our pockets the phone but without a doubt there is going to be an impact we see it in a story like this the thing is human communication was always unidirectional and It was staggered. It was time staggered. We now have bi-directional, real-time communication. This is a brand new situation for humans to be in. Mm. You know, we are used to our phones pinging and dinging and whirring and lighting up and having this constant relay of information with anybody, not just the people in your family, but it can be anyone in the world. And what this story shows is that it's changing how we want to live and probably with... With quite detrimental yeah. effects. What's for people? happened to the
2: regulatory stuff as well, though? Because we've had Parliament, I think, banning TikTok. So if you've got an official government phone or you're an MP, you're not supposed to have TikTok on your phone. It doesn't stop them having another phone, of course. But and it, certainly in America, certain states have banned it from government buildings. And I think in Washington DC, it's not allowed um, as a you know as an app on on a government individual's or a civil servant's phone. Mm. But it seems to have kind of stopped there. You know, it doesn't. It, I haven't heard much about it lately.
7: Well, there have been talks about banning TikTok for under-16s. So they're just ideas that are floated. You mm. know, in that way that policy is triangulated, people say, oh, this is serious, we must do something. And then you have your free speech warriors, normally it'd be somebody like me saying, we don't want to ban things. And then you have all your concerned parents yeah. saying, yes, we, we must protect children from this. I mean, I think I'm not a big fan of the nanny state, but I I think probably children should be protected from the addictive and cognitively damaging effects mm. of something like TikTok.
2: I think that's not a bad argument to make. And I mean, the trouble is, as you say, people will say, oh, well, where does that end then? And who else is going to say, well, maybe we don't like Twitter or maybe we don't like the new threads? Have you seen the new threads? Have I you haven't actually delved captivated yet. By...
7: No, have you I, got a threads Well,
2: I started one only because I thought perhaps I'll see what it's like. But the problem is it's linked to my Instagram, which is what it does. And on my Instagram account, it's not really something I use very much. So it's got kind of a low number. So I'm sticking with Twitter, even though it's as horrible as it is.
7: It's <laughs> no. familiar. It's
2: horribly familiar.
7: Better the poison you know. Well, quite.
2: You know, they say Threads is going to be nicer, but there's nobody on it for, the, for me. I mean, if you've got a big Instagram following, I'm sure it's very good, and you can go off and do whatever you want to do. But um, but no, I'm I'm going to stick with my familiar cesspit.
7: I I just don't want to add another social media Do you know, that's the other thing account to the mix because I'm I'm drowning in social media. Yeah. Now so despite having written a book called Free Your Mind and there's a chapter in there called Practice Practice Social Media Distancing, I'm no paragon of virtue. I'm totally addicted mm. to, to social media. Hello, my name is Laura and I am a Twitter yeah. edit.
2: I must admit the weekend where it all went wrong and you couldn't see anything or tweet anything or read anything because of the data, you know, implosion. Um, I actually had a very nice weekend. I just put it down and thought, you know what, I'm not going to bother because every mm. time I pick it up, there's nothing for me to see. So actually, I didn't do. I, did, I didn't. really miss it.
7: Well, that's. I mean, that's really good if you can do that that easily. Last summer, I took myself to a convent uh-huh. to do a no phone digital Finally, de- detox, looking for some <laughs> kind of salvation.
2: Did they turn you, They turn you down. So, sorry.
7: Get me to a nunnery. Um, so, actually, it was a really useful experience. And do you know what? My social media usage, apart from being, you know, it was, it was pretty much zero, that, that 24 hours, it stayed low for mm. a while. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe for me, I need to do regular formal digital detoxes. Yeah. My co-author is a psychologist, Patrick Fagan. He... I'm going to embarrass him now. I'll tell you what he does. Mm. He's given the passwords for his screen time to his wife. Right. So he sets his app limits and his screen time and he can't override it. The problem I have is I override my own screen limits when I set them. I mean, one thing is I now find that when I use social media, I spot things. I see the effects of algorithms. If if I see a tweet that makes me feel angry or scared, I won't just retweet it. Mm. You know, I'm very mindful about my emotional engagement with it, but I'm not on it any less. I've still got a big nut to crack. So the last thing I need to do is add threads. I probably need to come off social media. Mm. I dabbled with TikTok.
2: Yeah, I did. But and I, find, I gave up.
7: I find posting on it boring. Yeah. And yet I found myself scrolling, yeah. scrolling. I thought, what am I doing? I mean, I'll, Do I want people to do these like dances yeah. to pop songs and talk about their hair and makeup? What am I mm. what am I doing? I've got to have something better to do with my yeah. life than this. I mean, I,
2: I've occasionally seen a, a, sometimes a clip from from this show going you know up to half a million or a couple of million not very often but occasionally it does but i i found when i had my own account and putting stuff out i just didn't do any numbers because again if you haven't got many followers you know, it's, I'm not going to, you know, prostitute myself to get them. But but start dancing yeah. like Britney Spears. You know. <laughs> Sorry, that's not where we're coming from on this one, but Although you know Although you
7: have tempted me, perhaps we should do a Britney Spears dance together and Maybe. see how viral we can go. What Maybe. do you think, Mike? Well, we
2: could try it on Threads, but like you, I, I woke up on Monday morning and thought, should I try and repost all of this stuff in all these different places? And I thought, well, I haven't got time. I just yeah. haven't got time. So, no is the answer. So, if you so want to find was, me, mostly I'm that. on Twitter. Um, before you go, let's talk about this uh, quiz that you're giving people to see what sort of personality you have.
7: It is fun. I'd like you to do it and give right. me your results later. It's okay. called Fra- How Free Is Your Mind? Yes. It's is it on, in the it... book? No, no, it's not. Um, Pat, Pat, Patrick, my co-author, was don't hate him, let's just say he's come over from the dark side, he was the lead psychologist at Cambridge Analytica. Oh, right. If you love the Star Wars films, mm. I think of him as the Kylo Ren to my Rey. Okay. So we've designed this quiz together by which I mean he's done all the hard work, the coding, and I've done all the backseat driving. Okay. We wanted to just create a fun quiz for people. You know, if you'd, it'll test your media consumption, what you instinctively understand about situations where you could be manipulated and some basic personality questions to find out how manipulable you are are you a renegade a normie or a goldfish now guess what my score is
2: Um, a renegade a normie did you say
7: or a goldfish. You can't be a
2: normie or a goldfish, no, can you? I'm a, rene- a renegade. I'm a renegade, baby. Okay. Yeah. What and if you manipulate the results? Horribly thrilled. What if you're such a manipulator that you manipulate the results? Okay.
7: Well, if I manipulate the results, I get zero out of ten. If I'm honest about how much I'm on social media, it's more like two or three out of ten. Because right. I do use media a lot. And, when, and the more you're on media, the more... Uh, vulnerable you are to being manipulated right. although i would argue you can use media well, depends, very mindfully but what i like what i'm really i think is really funny is a lot of my followers have been doing it today and they're all renegades right. so i i mean i think my followers are brilliant but we might be we might be a bit of a petri dish silo. of of renegade people a silo
2: of renegades well where can we find this quiz
7: uh it's on my twitter today okay. at their you can, you can do it and show your results, Mike. That's a challenge. I will. Let's see if you're a renegade or a goldfish. Will you be honest?
2: Um, I will be honest. I'm always honest.
7: You're always honest. Because honesty is the best policy. Of course it this is. This is not the BBC. This is talk TV.
2: Exactly right. And what a very good place to end it. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> um, and your new book is Free the Mind, right? Free,
7: free your mind. It's out next week, which is very exciting. Very the 20th, exciting. Yeah. Are you have your party. No, do you know they don't do parties anymore oh, no? in book publishing? What's wrong with them? What it is used wrong to be honestly. My first Shocking. four books, it's all like wine parties, yeah. lavish events, cheese, right. cheese, because we've got to come up in the search engine results. Buses. And um, publishing has gone very dull. No, there's no mm. party. No.
2: Damn. Oh, well, we'll just have to have a party of our own then. Perhaps Um, I'll
7: bring something in for you and I next week. How about that? We can have an early party.
2: Excellent. All right, then. Good plan. Thank you very much indeed. I'll go do the quiz. Um, I might not do it until after the show's over, though. We shall see. Uh, This is Talk TV. Talk
1: TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV.
2: Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've only got another half an hour to go. Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock, of course, with all the latest uh, from the BBC story as it unfolds this afternoon. What we can tell you uh, is that the BBC have now been asked to pause their investigation while the police can conduct their own. Uh, where that goes, anybody's guess. But we'll, as soon as we find anything else out, as soon as we get any more detail on anything, and we will, of course, bring it to you uh, right n- here, uh, right now. For now, though, Ben Clatworthy's here. Travel across the with the Times. Very good uh, afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Um, there was more trouble for EasyJet flights yesterday. Um, uh, apparently, there could be a sort of summer of discontent looming. Could y- there? Well,
8: yes. The problem that EasyJet and all airlines are facing is huge disruption in Europe with air traffic control. Mm. Um, it's a factor of things one being staff shortages many uh, of these well-paid air traffic controllers decided during the pandemic that they would take early retirement recruiting is taking longer it's a stressful job it needs a lot of training it's not easy to get people in to do it Mm. and ready that's taking longer there's also 20 percent less air capacity in europe because of the war in ukraine okay. and there's the threat of strikes there's been more strikes in france this year in air traffic control than any other year that's them walking out in solidarity with the people affected by macron's mm. uh, pensions reforms oh, yeah. even though they're they not strike affected. every summer anyway don't they, they? they do they do um, there's italian strikes coming up uh towards the end of This week, off the top of my head, Um, and there's also a threat of the central body, Eurocontrol, going on strike as well. So a trifecta of problems, as it were, facing And so, I mean,
2: uh, does this mean that if you are booked on an EasyJet flight, they will have to find you an alternative method of getting wherever you're supposed to be going?
8: Yes, so over the weekend, EasyJet cancelled 1,700 flights of those flights, 95% of people are already sorted and rebooked. However, one person I was speaking to today said it's a nightmare in terms of the timings that they've been given. Their flights were only over to Ireland. They're suddenly completely changed Mm. what time they're going to depart. And the point was that they booked the flights they have for a reason. It's a multiple frequency route. When they booked the flights, there was lots of options to choose. They picked the flight times that they wanted for specific reasons to be there in time for an event, a wedding, and now that's not going to be possible, so they're looking at alternate routes. So there are a lot of people affected by this. EasyJet, though, their argument is that they're preemptively cancelling these flights to take some strain out of the system. They say they're flying 1,800 flights a day at the moment, so it represents a tiny proportion of the overall flying schedule for the 180,000 people affected, mm. though they will probably have a slightly different view on what a tiny proportion of the schedule is.
2: And is there a limit time-wise on how soon they have to tell you if a flight's being affected, or can it just literally happen
8: on the day? Well, you get compensation if it's less than two weeks in advance. So what they've done is taken out flights in July, August and September. Now, of course, there will be some people listening who are affected by that two-week window. Mm. Whether you get compensation also depends on how quickly they can get you to your destination, right. do you, exactly. And they can't charge you more lead. money or anything like that. They
2: can't. No, they have to rebook you free, free of charge. Right. Okay. Meanwhile, back home in Blighty, um, rail fares could be halved. It says here. Um, under plans to let more firms compete on the same lines, is this following on from the bro- blockbuster news that all ticket offices are going to be shut? This is a report by Rail Partners,
8: which are one of the industry bodies yeah. of the railway. There are many industry bodies. There on does the there do seem to be rather a lot of them. <laughs> this one uh, is. Do any of
2: them do anything good?
8: Well, they, the Rail Partners, they're big on private sector involvement in the. Um, railway industry now I didn't actually report on this they put out a report I didn't report on their report because I think you need to take it with a massive pinch of Mm. salt that rail fares are ever going to halve in this country their idea being more operators more competition Mm. fares go down we've seen it in the airline industry before the legacy carriers when they got the competitions from the low cost rivals has it been seen a little bit on the route up to Scotland with the arrival of LUMO a low cost train company a little bit but the legacy fares are still very very high lumo charge less so yes there is an argument and for And is
2: it. that uh, so there's two companies operating on the same actual yeah, railway Yes so
8: there's uh, LNER and yeah. Lumo Lumo being the budget version yeah. both operating up to Scotland Lumo are cheaper Yeah it's more no frills in right. some way not that going on the railways is There's not many frills on the old these um, days.
2: East Coast main line I
8: it? have to say though I struggle to see any way that this is going to happen our mm. railway capacity is already extremely constrained i don't think there's any way and i don't think anyone should hold their breath that fares are going to any anytime soon no. but it's a nice idea from effectively a railway think tank
2: yes i mean interestingly enough i suppose we do struggle to get the trains that are supposed to run at the moment on a line which is dedicated to only them running them um, that seems to be difficult for us to do. So the idea of actually having more than one company operating on the same stretch of railway seems very far-fetched.
1: To me.
8: Well, there's that and also the fact that often, and I'm not excusing the railway company's individual incompetence at times, but often problems are caused by things beyond the yeah. individual operators' right. control. So if the, if the East Coast, West Coast mainline goes down... It's not going to whether you're booked on Lumo, LNER, or fancy West Coast. Anywhere. You're not going anywhere. So in that sense, there's there are factors outside mm. the control. I have to say, it's a it's a lovely idea. It's a bit like demand. You know what we do need to see in this country is wholesale reform of fares. That's mm. the biggest thing. There's something like a million different fare combinations, and actually, that's one of the arguments. Is if you're going to do away with ticket offices, you need to make fares. Uh, simplify them dramatically and more, yeah
2: i mean i don't use the trains very much at all now but people who do say to me it's so complicated just trying to work out whether you buy nothing you can buy a return ticket anymore you can only buy two singles but on you have some to be lines, careful yeah, yes when you buy them and because you could be paying twice as much if you're not and people don't have that kind of information or that much time in you know on their hands they they have to book a, a, a ticket they book it if you don't have you know the wisdom of solomon because you don't know everything then you're going to get screwed, aren't you? Yes, you are. And I mean, the fact that now there's
8: so... Train line, as one example, will tell you if it's worked out a way to split your fare and make it Mm. cheaper argues well surely it should just be cheaper and actually yeah. one of the arguments on the ticket offices are people saying that in some stations they know the person in the ticket office know and you know they, they're familiar with them and they'll go and they'll have a chat with them and they'll often find a cheaper way to buy a ticket than walking mm. up to the machine and typing in the destination and I fully believe that because the machines don't give you the offer of splitting the ticket no. it's the apps or a clever person in a ticket office who knows how well what the work around most
2: people would have no clue no
8: and and you 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 have no reason to know it often Mm. depends on when off peak and off off peak and peak start and end and so on that knowledge is something that well an algorithm can do it or a human being Mm. that knows the railway can do it
2: absolutely only of course if it's not on a strike day um, well, of which is looming again sometimes towards the end of the month, I think.
8: Yeah, so next week the ASLEF drivers walk out again, which actually is arguably the most disruptive yeah, strikes. Because then the moment. there are no trains at all, are there? Well there are with their overtime bans there are some trains, but it's a severely reduced timetables on most routes. Many commuter routes in and out of big cities down to that may have eight trains an hour go down mm. to one or two um also lots of last minute cancellations as well on top of these revised timetables yeah. then there's RMT strikes although they're less damaging now that it's just train staff it's not the dri- it's not sorry the um network rail signalers anymore right. so the RMT strikes are slightly uh, the impact of them has been slightly lessened mm. by Network Rail going back. These left overtime bans, it's a whole week again of it next week, plus RMT strikes as well. It is going to be very difficult for people travelling next week. And a tube week. strike as well, right? There is tube strikes looming again. Those are Aslef drivers, um, and that, that does basically shut down the uh, tube. They're walking out for two days later this month.
2: <sighs> I remember the last tube strike was actually because the traffic was completely and utterly gridlocked.
8: Yes, although the one thing we don't see as much is when it was previously tube strikes, it always gave the evening standard that classic picture of people queuing up yeah. at bus stops. And with so much working from home now, certainly looking out, uh, you see a lot of people walking over London Bridge out of our windows mm. here, but it's not as bad as it used to be during the tube no. strikes. And that, I think, is what we're seeing with the train strikes as well, as the effect of mm. them is that it's not as it's detrimental not as, bad as it, as as it, was it would before. have been
2: no true but i think a lot of people who work in london who are you know doing jobs where you have to be there of course. you know they are the ones who get who, who suffer at oh, the hands of uh, undoubtedly who supposedly are all about the working man
8: undoubtedly i mean we've i've spoken to people who have a half an hour uh, or an hour long tube commute which is very as standard yeah. in london an hour on the tube make that three hours on the bus at rush hour and these are people that are getting in for shifts nurses doctors mm. but also everything you know just normal street services bins yeah. um waste management drains everything it's yeah. jobs that simply cannot be done from home mm,
2: exactly right ben good to see you thank you very much indeed ben Clatworthy, travel correspondent for the times there of course with an update on uh, what's going on in the big wide world in case you want to get out of here uh, it may not be as easy as you think Uh, Coming up, we'll take more of your calls. Ian Collins will be here, of course, as well. We'll keep you updated uh, on all the big stories we're covering uh, right here, right now. This is Talk TV.
7: Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
2: If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app.